The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program. Josh Pick is the Chief Investment Advisor with Aptus Wealth Management, a state-registered investment advisory firm. This program is sponsored by Aptus Wealth Management. Exposure to ideas and financial vehicles discussed should not be considered investment advice or recommendation to buy or sell financial vehicles. This information should not be considered tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult with professionals to see if any ideas expressed would fit their specific situation. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. Securities can fluctuate and when redeemed may be more or less than when originally invested. Welcome in to the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management. We're looking forward to spending the next hour with you talking about investing, growing your nest egg, what you are saving and investing in retirement to arrive at financial independence later on in life. That's what they specialize in at Aptus. Their firm is located in Lewis Center, just off Route 750, and they offer you a no-obligation consultation. Go in, get to know the team, gauge your exposure to risk, your tolerance for risk, and talk about investing with them. And you can set that up by calling the office and making your appointment 614-917-1040, 614-917-1040. You can also make your appointment online. Their web address is Aptus Wealth, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. And we are, as we sit today, halfway through calendar year 2023. Josh, just from a long view, like what kind of year have we had in investing and maybe compare it to other years where you may or may not have had a more clear direction on where things are headed than you might have at this particular point in time. Yeah, I would say the last uh, few years, you know, insert COVID all the way through today has been a pretty tumultuous time. And I think that the, the real word that comes to mind is volatility. There's been a tremendous amount of volatility. While 2020, for example, ended up being positive for the S&P 500 as a whole. It wasn't without plenty of heart palpitations along the way. We were down over 30% in a very short period of time during COVID before the rally. Then we had a reasonably good year in 2021. And then 2022, we were down, you know, uh, the better part of 20%. Yeah. And I'm speaking specifically the S&P 500. But then I look at 2022, and I think the real storytelling uh, of 2022 was not the S&P 500, but it was the aggregate bond index shaving off roughly 12%. So unlike even if you look back to 2008, 2009, where you could run and hide and go to the bond market and still do relatively well, there was very few places to hide in 2022. And now this year, market's off to a uh, really a burner. You know, we're up mm-hmm. uh, in the teens for the S&P 500. But growth is really the story here. Uh, and I think we've talked about this at least uh uh, from a cursory perspective uh, already in the last uh, month or so. But if you look at the S&P 500 year to date, it's really 10 stocks driving 100% of the gains. And mm-hmm. those 10 stocks are usual suspects in the growth category. Think of Amazon, Apple, Google, Google NVIDIA, et cetera. Uh, those companies have been responsible for essentially 100% of the gains. So the other 490 stocks in the S&P 500 have earned essentially Nothing. Now, if you're listening to this and saying, well, some of them have earned some, I'm saying if you take them in aggregate, mm-hmm. 490 are flat and 10 are shooting the lights out. Now, why is that really terrifying as you look forward to the future of investing? Well, there's there's many indices that we can look at and many ratios that we can look at. But I think the two that are two or three that are very important 
is roughly a third of the S&P 500 is invested in those 10 stocks now. Mm -hmm. That is the formulation of what we would call a bubble. The same thing happened back in 1999 and 2000 before the dot-com bubble. Um, But number two, we're still in an inverted yield curve, which historically speaking has never been a good thing. We're still tussling with inflation, although it seems to be getting under control. And we're rounding into elections, which are starting to heat up. And we're hearing about all this, you know, geopolitical issues, et cetera. So no shortage of things to be a little fearful, fearful of. But I think what it really points to is how do you handle it moving forward? And I think for the first time in the better part of 10, 12, well, since 2009, this will be the first year where you better know what you're doing, in my opinion. Yeah, um, there are a lot of predictors out there that say we're headed for a recession, um, but there are also headlines that say we're not. And there are some encouraging numbers that say we're not. Uh, have we been in a recession since 2008, or would this be our first one? Kind of, I mean, a significant one that had a long-term impact on people's retirement savings. No, not essentially. No, the answer is no. Um, you know, I would say that while we've had our blips in the radar, we have not been in a defined recession uh, since 2008, 2009. Now, many would argue we're not in a defined recession right now because we just keep on changing the definition. But by old definition, yeah. we are in a recession today. Yeah, I mean, everybody out there listening, I'm aware that we were in a two quarters of negative GDP growth for uh, once under Joe Biden and the Biden administration disputed. That was what Josh's reference was to changing the definition of a recession. But I'm talking about a long term, a prolonged downturn that really impacted people's retirement savings. And and you and I have talked about uh, this concern that is out there, Josh, that you hear from your clients about, hey, you know, the market last year very didn't do well. This year it's up, but it's in a few stocks. And so uh, should I get out? Should I hold cash? Uh, Here's a couple numbers. Uh, The uh, statistics show that there's nearly $2 trillion dollars in retail money market funds being held by the general public and another three and a half trillion in money markets held by banks and, and other institutions. That's number is up just 11% in four months. To me, that would say that there are a lot of nervous people out there about having their money in the market. Well, it could mean something else. And that could mean that, you know, savings rates still across the country are less than a half a percent. Whereas money market rates across the country are, you know, five, six times that. So this could be a matter of people just taking money out of traditional savings and checking accounts and investing into an area where you can make more. I mean, it's not uncommon today to find money market accounts paying north of 4%, Mm -hmm. which is a heck of a lot higher, eight times higher than the the average of savings accounts. But I think it does speak to particularly institutional money shifting to what they believe to be a risk-free rate of return. And that's always the argument in investing is I'm willing to take risk by investing in the stock market if I'm rewarded for it. Mm Mm-hmm. If I can go get 7% guaranteed in a fixed CD, and my hope is to get 7% with all this volatility, why would I even play the game? And there's some arguments on both sides of that. But I think you are seeing particularly institutions that have to report to their shareholders positivity every single quarter. It's much easier to just go grab a treasury or a money market or a CD earning 5%. Yeah, we will talk more about uh, some of those things that Josh just alluded to. That actually uh, describes uh, some of my investments with Josh and the Aptis team in terms of taking some of the gains of the market and not exposing myself to all the risk of the market. There are many different options out there, and they do a great job at Aptis of discussing them with you. And 
helping you understand them. I'm certainly not a financial expert, but I understood everything, as did my wife when we sat down for our consultation with Josh and we became Aptus clients. You can do the same. Sit down, no obligation consultation. Set it up online, aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S, aptuswealth.com. You can make your appointment by calling their office. Their number is 614-917-1040. They're located in Lewis Center. It's not far from 23 and 270, and you can catch Josh with me on Mondays, 12.30 p.m., the Money Monday segment on 98.9, The Answer. So you alluded to the inverted yield curve. That is when the shorter term pays more than the longer term, tying your money up, and uh, that has uh, reached a spread that I guess is the greatest in 40 years, and it continues to be inverted, and it continues to be inverted by a lot. Can you go through just a rudimentary explanation of why that is uh, bad and why that might be an indicator, as some say, of a recession that is coming? Yeah, you know, the government always wants, and just as a nation, we always want people uh, foregoing instant gratification in favor of long-term solidarity. That's why the government promotes homeownership so much, for example. Mm -hmm. We can look at communities and say when homeownership is high, those communities, historically speaking, have a better semblance of community, uh, better schools. The list goes on versus a renting community. Mm -hmm. Well, similarly, when you look at savings rates, we want people to be encouraged to save money for the long run rather than being transient with their money. So the idea of saying, well, if I buy a one-year CD, I get 4%. If I buy a five-year CD, I get 6% would entice people to go to that longer-term duration. When yield curves go inverted, it's the exact opposite. You can get 5% for one year, and you might only get 4.5% if you lock up the money over the long run. Now, what causes that? What causes that is banks and the country as a whole having a lot of trepidation, angst, anxiety, uh, lack of confidence in our ability to keep interest rates that high long enough to justify the payout. So when yield curves go inverted, what they're saying is... As a bank or as a lending institution or a savings institution, we do not believe that interest rates are going to stay at this level for very long. So what are the challenges with that? Well, why wouldn't they believe that? Well, they wouldn't believe it because of either they believe inflation is going to come under control, which would be great. Mm-hmm. Or maybe they believe that the Fed is going is overshot the runway and they're going to need to pull back interest rates to stimulate the economy because they are throwing us into a recession. And you'd say, well, that's a kind of a leap. Well, I can tell you this, and I challenge anybody to call into the show and prove us wrong. I cannot recall a time in history through any research that we've done that has shown a disparity of uh, short-term to long-term interest rates, this inverted yield curve, where the market has not had a negative uh, return following. Mm -hmm. So what it points to is just another metric saying the worst is not over yet. Yeah, CNBC this week was citing that inverted yield curve, saying that the difference between a two-year treasury and a 10-year is more than a percentage point, and that that has predicted a recession in uh, 19, I think, 90, 2001, 2008. Um, Did the Fed's determination to get interest rates under control continually raising the benchmark interest rate, and they've raised it by a total of 5% since they started doing it, it has brought inflation, or it has, well, it it has happened and inflation has come down. I'm not going to imply that there's a causal relationship, even though most people would say that there is. It was a 
inflation at an apex of 9.1%. Now it's down to 4 and perhaps even lower than 4. We'll get the new numbers very, very soon. But did the raising of interest rates by the Fed contribute to some of the bank failures that we saw because they were caught in that inverted yield curve trap? Absolutely. Uh, Maybe not in the reason that you think. It was more of a bond issue. Um, So as you continually raise interest rates, uh, that is an inverse relationship to bond prices, and it makes complete sense. Uh, Bonds are simply debt. A company wants to raise money to build a plant. They don't want to go to the bank, so they go to the Hoolies and say, hey, will you give us $100,000? We'll pay you 5% in interest over the next 10 years, and then at the end of 10 years, we'll give you $100,000 back. And you know, obviously, the higher creditworthiness of the company, the Treasury being the highest creditworthiness probably that there is, because you know you're going to get your money back, the interest rate has to go up as creditworthiness goes down, just like if you were getting a credit card and you had bad credit. But what happens is now we're locked into the Hoolies are locked into a 10-year bond, and they decide after five years, we changed our mind, we want to get out. Your bond is paying 5%. New bonds are paying 7 Nobody's going to give you the $100,000. Mm-hmm. Well, banks, particularly Silicon Valley Bank, did the exact same thing. They said, well, we really can't earn any money on a one-year treasury currently or on a one-year bond currently or on one-year CDs or whatever it is. They can't earn a lot of money. So let's go out to a longer duration. And the longer the duration, the bigger the risk of this interest rate. Well, then everybody started running in because the economy turned and said, we need our money. They had to go cash in the bonds. The bonds were all negative, and here comes the house of cards collapsing down. Uh, the reason they were so impacted by it is because they had so many business clients, particularly in the tech sector, that were harmed and needed cash very, very quickly. And as we already know through researching Silicon Valley Bank, they were the kind of antithesis of the normal bank, mm-hmm. and that 90% of their depositors had more than the $250,000 minimum, which just exacerbated the problem. He's Josh Pick. I'm Bruce Hooley. This is the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show, and you can access it online at 989theanswer.com. You can join Josh and I for Money Monday every Monday at 1235 p.m. on The Bruce Hooley Show. Set up your free no-obligation consultation with the Aptus team by making your appointment via the phone. Their office number is 614-917-1040, and their web address is aptuswealth.com. A-P-T-U-S is how you spell Aptus. Okay, so it strikes me that the financial world is just absolutely inundated in numbers and charts and history and and causal relationships between one thing going down, precipitating a rise in another, or vice versa. Uh, is it there? Why, therefore, is what results from a period like we're in now subject to so much debate? I can read headlines to you about. There's a recession coming and it's going to be X. Or I can find another headline that, no, no, because the unemployment rate is this and because consumer confidence is this, there's not going to be a recession. And there's this metric that says there will be and there's another metric that says there won't be. How often do people like you who are fiduciaries legally obligated to do the best thing for their client? How often does the financial world at large, I mean, banks, they must have got surprised. No bank wants to fail. How often do these things that I would think have been documented and have been studied and analyzed, how often do they result in a circumstance that people just don't see coming? Well, I think I've said this uh, many, many times that the only people who are wrong, maybe even more than the weathermen, is economists. And, you know, I'm not picking on them. There's plenty of great economists out there, and, and oftentimes they're right. But if you really dig deeper, most of the time, 
Economists write a book. They write once. They write a book, and then they lean into the fact that they wrote that book back in the day. Hey, I judged. I, I predicted this demise. Yes. And unfortunately, if you just say that everything is going to go to hell in a handbasket every single year, eventually you'll be right, and then just write a book about it and lean into it. And I think we get the misconception that the status of the overall economy, or let's say this economic forecast, somehow are the greatest predictor of how you should invest money. And it's just simply not the case. Matter of fact, if you listen to Warren Buffett, he'll tell you he doesn't pay attention to economists at all. He doesn't care. What he cares about is finding good companies that have long-term prospects of success that are run by tremendous leaders who have barriers to entry that he can buy at a good price. And then he owns a share in that entity that will continue to drive revenue that his shareholders will benefit from. That is Investing 101. Nowhere in that conversation was... And I also want to know what economists suggest is going to happen moving forward. Now, what I would say, though, is economists can give us some insight or maybe pull behind the curtain a little bit whether or not those companies that we purchase are going to have a tailwind or a headwind to contend with. Now, we can also say that there's plenty of companies that do very, very well in headwinds. Uh, you know, you don't have to have a tailwind to succeed. Mm -hmm. You have to have a competitive advantage and good leadership. So... I'm not suggesting that you completely ignore or that how the status of the economy is not important. It certainly is going to have an impact on your bottom line in your household, on how much you pay for gas or how much you pay for electricity, food, et cetera. But when it comes to investing, you have to be somewhat ag agnostic to those things and look at what your options are before you, knowing that you better do something. Pick the best options that you have. And then stay the course. That is the only way that you determine long-term success. And then the last thing, which is the most difficult for everyone, is ignore the headlines and ignore what people tell you they're doing. Mm. I have yet to meet anybody who doesn't average a 20% average annual rate of return when I talk to them, except for that I have yet to meet anybody who's actually done it in the long run. But everybody tells you about their one success and never tells you about their 12 failures. But it's very difficult not to try and benchmark yourself against irrelevant facts. Like, for example, the Standard & Poor's is a great judge, judge of the overall economy, mm -hmm. one would argue. Does that mean that you should always benchmark everything you do against the S&P 500? If it's up 15, I better be up 15 or more. If it's down 15, I better be down none because I'm better, I'm smarter. What you're doing is, and you told me offline, people seem to be running or chasing what makes them miserable. Yeah, they, they're fascinated by information that really steals their contentment, their joy, whatever, and they obsess over it. And, and if they just wouldn't seek it out, um, they'd be better off not... It's almost like investors who look at their investments too often who or who are not... They don't see the upside of what they have done. They see only the downside. And I have a, a gentleman that's a client of mine and a good friend who is uh, in special operations in the military. And he always says this, and it doesn't apply to our day-to-day -day lives, but it's the same concept. He says, don't run to your death. Take a breath. Look yeah. around. Make sure you're making the right call. And I don't think we always do that. We run towards what makes us miserable. How do I compare to something else? And I saw an interesting statistic that I think is of, of great concern today that really illustrates that. And that is, percentage-wise of people's assets, people over the age of 60 are actually putting more money percentage-wise in the stock market than people between the ages of 18 and 45 combined, which means 
for whatever reason, people in their 60s are starting to invest more aggressively than people in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. And you say that can't be a correct stat. Well, why would you suggest that that is? Well, over the last, we have a fear of missing out. And over the last 10 or 15 years, if you had 100% of your money in the stock market, it has rewarded you handsomely shy of last year, but you're still way ahead. So why would I do anything else? Well, you would do anything else because you've been around long enough to remember 0809, 0102, 1987. The list just keeps on going back and back. But you'd say, well, as long as I close my eyes and I stay the course, what do I care? Well, you care because you're now at a season of your life where you actually need to turn this money that you've been saving from a net worth to an income. So I would caution people to have a hard conversation with themselves and saying, rather than trying to build my net worth or compare what I've earned as an interest rate, what was I investing for in the first place? Was it so that when I die, people will read off my net worth in the obituary? If it was, please stand fast, stay the course. (laughs) Was it, I want to make sure that I never spend any of my money, I'm just going to keep on growing it so that I can brag about my net worth? Well, then again, stay the course. But if your objective was, I want to work, save money, so that at some point I don't have to work anymore and I'll use that money, or whatever the goal was, sure. then what's important at the point where you say I'm done working is making sure that it can generate a predictable income for the rest of your life that you're not going to outlive. That's the most important thing. But I think we lose sight of that. Yeah, and as you go through that scenario, like it reminds me of the fact that you know we talk about the Aptus Retirement Blueprint. A blueprint is something that builders and architects follow because it's established and it's something that you've thought about and you understand and you're committed to. If you had somebody building you a house and in the course of building the house, they decided to deviate from the blueprint, it might compromise the structural integrity of the house or it might throw off the measurements in another part of the house. And if you depart from it on the fly because, well, this sounds good or this shiny object over here feels good to me, then, you know, not intentionally, but quite unintentionally, you could be affecting what the original purpose was. And I know that this fear of missing out that you refer to, um, we are at the end of June. Tomorrow is uh, July the 1st. There's a famous contract in baseball, which has been held up for years, as the kind of contract that every player should strive for. It's the Bobby Bonilla contract from uh, eh, 13 years ago, I guess. He started getting annual payments from the New York Mets of $1.2 million. Uh, There are 12 more years on those payments to run. So the original contract was for about $6 million, but he got it at 8% interest. So he's getting, I don't know, is this an annuity or whatever? But every Major League Baseball player knows about the Bobby Bonilla contract. And in a smaller sense, it feels like when people talk to their friends, talk to their neighbors, find out what their neighbors say their returns are, doesn't mean they're real, just means they said it, people get really, really envious and really, really desirous of duplicating or exceeding gains that may not even exist. Well, yes, and I'll give you a perfect example of it. I have people that come in all the time with pensions, think federal employees. I'm getting, or, or police officers, I'm getting five, $6,000 a month as a pension for the rest of my life and my wife's life. Plus I get social security in many cases. So I'm living on a hundred thousand dollars guaranteed adjusted for inflation for the rest of my life. I'm not like one of your millionaire clients. <laughs> <laughs> you would need two and a half yeah. million dollars to generate the same amount of money. Yeah. Right. But its perception is reality. And I think Bobby Bonilla, you know, he probably says, well, I get $1.2 million per year, but I don't have $6 million in the bank. It's this weird uh, 
you know, the S&P 500 is up 14 and a half, 15% year to date, but I'm only up eight. Ah, uh, I suck. Well, maybe you're only down five last year and everybody else was down 20. We forget very quickly context in the past. And I'll give you an example on why I think everybody should be very cautious right now. People who were investing in dividend paying stocks in the year 2000, as the market continued to run and you could see valuations are getting crazy amongst these dot-com stocks, they're not even making any money. What are we doing? Mm -hmm. Fear of missing out, fear of missing out, dump more money. The S&P 500 over the next 10 years lost, or next two years lost 50% where dividend stocks posted double-digit returns combined over those two years. Sometimes it takes a little while to see the forest through the trees. Yeah, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. And that's what they specialize in at Aptis is they've been through this. They have so many different metrics, so many different things they're watching, and they are disciplined, and they come up with the Aptis Retirement Blueprint plan for you, not the same for every client because everybody's in a different position. Everybody has different resources. So I highly encourage you to do what my wife and I did, which is go in, sit for the consultation, then make your decision about what you're going to do as you hopefully have a plan that you are working as you stick to it and advance toward financial independence. 614-917-1040 or AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. Thanks for joining us for this segment on the Aptus Retirement Blueprint Radio Show. I'm Bruce Hooley here with Josh Pick of Aptus Wealth Management. Looking forward to spending the next half hour with you talking about concepts that can help you increase your nest egg. Saving money, great, but you really need to invest money to have it pay dividends for you. Not necessarily actual dividends, but I mean pay off, grow, so that you arrive at those uh, later life stages with money that can sustain you through your retirement and uh, take away the burden that you might face if you had not invested. That's what they specialize in at Aptus. They are fiduciaries, which means they are legally obligated to do what is best for you. And they offer you a free consultation where they can explain what that means. And they can also explain the retirement blueprint that they put together, which is tailored to every single client. My wife and I are clients at Aptus. I highly recommend that you sit at least for the consultation so that you get to know them. It's an enlightening conversation that, in my case, offered us peace of mind. We were relieved of the burden of having to worry about, are we in the right kind of investment assets? What kind of return are we getting? Um, we were hopeful that we had not screwed it up, but retirement and your nest egg is one of those things that if you make a bad mistake, it is hard to come back from it later in life because you don't want to work until you're way into your 70s or 80s. At least I don't. 614-917-1040. If you'd like to take advantage of that free consultation, set up your appointment by calling their office, 614-917-1040. Or you can make your appointment online at AptusWealth, A-P-T-U-S, AptusWealth.com. If you're outside the central Ohio area, not a problem. They have many clients who are outside the area. The uh, miracle of Zoom, one good thing from the pandemic that we have that has enabled Aptus to service clients outside the area. So let's go into the... Uh, conversation somebody comes in for a uh, uh, a consultation for the first time and i'm curious uh how much do you have to focus them on what they're trying to accomplish i mean i think most of my previous thoughts about retirement was just i'm going to save as much money as i can afford to save invest as much money as i can afford to save and i don't have any clue what the number needs to be but if it's not uh, in the uh, high hundreds of thousands of dollars or a million plus, and that really didn't seem at all realistic to me. Um, 
I'm not going to have enough, and not having enough worries me. And so, like going to the dentist, um, I don't want to go to the dentist because I don't like going to the dentist, and then I don't like going to the dentist because I have a lot more cavities than when I should have gone to the dentist a long time ago. Well, hopefully we're not as bad as the dentist. No, because I no, hate you're going not. to the dentist as well. Um, I think a lot of attention needs to be paid, and there has to be a process, and that's why we have a process. And the the, the unfortunate byproduct of that process is it takes time. And it takes time because we have a lot of misconceptions or just a straight lack of knowledge on income generation off of our asset pool or off of all this money that we saved up or invested over time. Most of what we read about or we can easily access in the way of information is about how to grow it. There's very little information about how to distribute it. So knowing that, we don't even really know the challenges that are associated with that. For example, um, when people come to my office and I say, well, you understand about asset allocation in general, right? Yep. Diversity. Yeah. You don't want all your eggs in one basket or, you know, Mm -hmm. not all your apples in one cart or whatever their metaphor is. Well, how about investing? Well, I know I need some big companies, small companies. I got to buy them at the right price. They have a good, you know, maybe I look at Morningstar and I look up five-star funds Mm -hmm. and I know that's a good place to start. I understand fees are important. I got to play that game. We all, at least anecdotally, know that stuff. And then I say, well, what impact do you think the potential risk of sequence of returns is going to have when you retire? Never heard of it. That is one of the biggest challenges of retirement income. You'd say, well, uh, what about the impact of inflation? Well, I know that's a problem. Things get more expensive every year. Well, do you think that healthcare goes up by the same rate as just daily expenses? Well, no, absolutely not. Well, how are you going to account for that? I have no idea. Uh, what about long-term care costs? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm not going in one of those, yeah. right? And the list goes on. It's because all of the attention is paid on the exciting stuff, and it stands to reason. I hate to put on my tinfoil hat, but if I was a fund company or if I was Wall Street, I want people to invest their money, never take anything out, rinse and repeat forever because that's how I make money. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of money or time trying to tell you how to get money out of the funds that I'm investing for you, making money for you. I mean, why would I do that? It's why counterproductive. Would you, yeah. So it's important that we go through a process, and the process builds. So in meeting number one, we're simply just asking a lot of questions, but then the analysis starts. So in meeting number two, we analyze everything that you're doing and show you whether or not your error is going to hit the target. We kind of call this the meeting where can you achieve the objective that you think you can achieve, yes or no. But then we start really diving into what are the challenges that you face that you need to conquer. Because sometimes you can win in spite of yourself. Sometimes you can either by just happenstance or serendipity, you can succeed. And, you know, sometimes that's even more dangerous than failing. You know, when you get gain confidence in spite of yourself, you're almost more dangerous to yourself than you were before. So we start diving into what are the challenges that you face ahead? How do you conquer those? Not as fear mongering or telling you, you know, the old sales process where you say, well, you know, I got to build a moat and I'm the only bridge. Not Mm -hmm. that at all. Let's just identify realistic things that could occur, and then let's start uncovering ways that we can conquer them. And in meeting number three, we cover those ways. So we say, okay, we've identified these problems, but how do you solve them? Here's the way to solve them. So we're not creating fear. Uh, We're just making sure you're aware as much on the distribution side as you maybe were on the accumulation side. Yeah, I think the thing that I didn't get was that uh, what I had saved for retirement was not just going to be like this pot of money uh, at the end of my working life that I would withdraw from as I needed. And boy, I hope it 
doesn't run out or I become a burden to my kids or have to depend on the government is I didn't really understand the the concept of that generating income for me in retirement. And does that make me a common client or an uncommon client? Incredibly common. Uh, what we see typically is people will have 401ks because that's their predominant retirement savings vehicle. They'll have a 401k and they say, well, my plan was I was going to call the 401k company and tell them to send me X dollars per month, per year, percentage, mm -hmm. you know, some formulation of that. And my question to them is, well, where are they going to send it from? Well, my 401k. No, I, I heard that. But you have 10 different funds in your 401k. Where are they going to send it from? Well, they just proportionally take it out of all of them. What well, do you know that that's a good idea? I don't know. I mean, it's just what they do. Well, I would argue that if you were going to take money out of a volatile thing or a less volatile thing, which one would you pick? You'd probably pick the less volatile. So you would say, I want to take it all from maybe the cash or bond fund or the limited maturity bond fund or the money market or something like that and leave my stock positions alone, particularly in years like last year where the market was down or particularly in years like this year where the market's really volatile. Most 401ks don't even allow you the option to do that. They say we just proportionally take it out of all your funds. So there's a lot of challenges facing retirees because not only do they not know the answer, but in many cases, the way they're set up, they're not even allowed to use the right answer. So you have to start really diving into what's the logic behind that. And the way that you do that is you show the impact of variability of the sequence of return risk. And we go over this with every single client. We show them a piece that was put out by a major fund institution that is not using one of their funds. It's just using random generated rate of returns and saying, I have no idea which three of these people I'm going to be. And one has tons of money at the end of 25 years. One went broke and one has a little bit of money. How do I determine which one I am? And I said, well, right now you can't. You're just crossing your fingers and hoping you're the first person with a lot of money. We have to figure out a predictable way. Now, here's the unfortunate part, Bruce. The predictable way isn't going to get you to the number one person, and that's who we're measuring ourselves against. Well, I want to have a million dollars when I start, live on $2 million a year, and still have a million dollars when I'm done. <laughs> that doesn't work that Only way. Only for Bobby Bonilla, does that right, work? Right, right. But that's kind of what we're benchmarking ourselves against. What we're, we are so concerned about getting a 9 or 10% rate of return that we ignore, well, can we still reach our objectives even when we're getting 9 or 10%? And what this piece illustrates is that you can take three people that all average a 7% rate of return, and those three people, because the order in which the returns occur when you're taking money, can have drastically, I mean, they're not even in the same ballpark types of outcomes. So my question to them would be, would you rather have when you retire a 5% rate of return or a 9? Everybody goes, 9. You don't have enough information yet. What if you get negative 20 the first five years and you went broke before the big ones started kicking in? Consistency is incredibly important. And when you have times like these, where the market's posting 15% rate of returns this year, and you go, well, I'm only up eight. I must be an idiot. You're not an idiot. You're actually just playing it smart. Yeah. And that's a hard thing to understand. It is, unless you sit down and have the conversation with Josh and his team over your no-obligation consultation, and then you do understand it. I've said all uh, throughout, becoming a client at Aptis has offered us peace of mind. And as you're getting close to retirement, and I'm not ready to retire yet, not even within the next couple of years, but I want to make sure that I don't get to that point and have wasted time that would have allowed me to fix an issue that now confronts me. So I would highly recommend that consultation. 614-917-1040 to set it up. Aptus Wealth, their website, aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S. They're located in Lewis Center. It is right off Route 750. 
and it's not far from 23 and 270. So uh, let's chat about the uh, SECURE Act of uh, 2022. has provisions that are set to take effect in 2024. 2024 sounds like it's a long way away. It's six months away because we're halfway through. Uh, it's always better to be uh, proactive than reactive. Remind me again what the SECURE Act is and what some of the things that you're planning for and uh, working toward already in preparation for that becoming law in 2024. Yeah, so the SECURE Act 2.1, or or 1.0, if you want to call it that, which is called the SECURE Act, was passed uh, previously, and that changed a bunch of things, particularly as it related to retirement uh, savings. You know, there was a bunch of provisions in there. One that really hit a lot of people, particularly in the retirement category, was it pushed the required minimum distribution age from 70 and a half to 72. And that age or those required minimum distributions are simply exactly that. At some point in your IRAs, 401ks, 403bs, all that alphabet soup stuff where you've been kicking the can on taxes up to this point and deferring taxes, the government wants their money. So they force you to take some money out of it. It used to be that started at 70 and a half, now it's 72. The Secure Act 2.0 kicked that to 73 and then all the way to 75 by the 2030s. So what does that mean and why is that beneficial? It gives you more time to do things like Roth conversions. It gives you more time to try and lessen the blow of what those minimum required distributions will be. So that's actually hugely advantageous. Those are the pros. There's a lot of cons, though, too, of the SECURE Act. And one of them, very apropos timing, as we're sitting here on Friday looking at, you know, one of the Supreme Courts, I believe it was out of, what, Nebraska maybe, uh, decided to turn down Biden's uh, paying off of student loan debt yeah, or relieving the, student yeah, loan the debt. Yeah, the SCOTUS threw that out. Not a not a, not a a result the president's happy with. Well, and I'm sure a bunch of people are going to protest over that, that have student loans and would love for them to get wiped out. But one thing that the Secure Act 2.0 did do, and, you know, I'm tossed up on this, and this is great for a conversation. I know you're a political guy, so mm-hmm. we can get a little bit of a political conversation about it, is that the Secure 2.0 allows employees of companies to beginning in 2024, I believe, start to pay off their student loan debt via their retirement savings. So in other words, rather than putting the money into the 401k, they direct it straight towards their student loan debt, and they can apply their company match to it. Wow. Now, that's a good thing on the surface, right? It's a good thing. I can Well, I'm in-, in favor of people paying off their debts. 100%. So why is that an advantageous thing. So you're allowing me to use my company match to pay off a student loan debt. And you're allowing me to, at least on the surface, it looks like, and we don't have final details here, but on the surface, put away pre-tax dollars to pay off my student loan debt. That's cool. It's also one of the saddest things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, because you're giving away a ton of gains that you could have when you finally retire. And the fact that student loan debt is just such a natural part of society now Mm. that we're just incorporating it into every company across the country to automatically pay it off. Yeah, good point. I don't want to put on my tinfoil hat, but it seems like, to an outside observer, that we're being encouraged to shackle ourselves with debt for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. Whether it's the average home buyer only stays in a home for five to seven years, so we get 30-year mortgages, but we only stay there for five years, then we buy bigger houses, which means we never get out of our home mortgage debt. Um, use credit cards for everything, right? And credit yep. card debt is on the rise. Yep. And now the only way to get ahead is to go get student loans and then no worries. That's just part of your paycheck. And I kind of make this akin to, you know, it wasn't always the case 
where your taxes were directly deducted from your check. There used to be a time where you had to write a check. Now, if you ask most people what their gross income is, they tell you, well, I make 100000 bucks a year. What do you bring home every two weeks? Two grand. Ugh. Where does it go? I don't know. Well, I can tell you where it's going. A large chunk of it is going to taxes, yeah. and you don't even know what they are because they auto-deduct. Yeah. So people will now get in a situation where they don't even think about how much student loan debt they have or how they're paying it off because it's just it's just part of that stuff that comes out of my check. The thing that becomes discouraging about this is why is education so expensive to begin with? Well, you can really see the trajectory change of the price of college as soon as the federal government came in and said, we'll loan you whatever you want to go to college. Yeah. Then student loan went through the roof. Yeah. Well, now if people are willing to just start paying for it out of their paycheck, what's to stop from the consistent increase of student loan debt? I feel like these programs, unfortunately, are just going to saddle people with more and more debt. Again, good news, Secure Act 2.0, you can pay for it out of your check, but I think it's really pointing towards some bad things to come. Yeah, and as I dug into the student loan question as the Supreme Court was getting ready to rule on it, I thought of you because I think there were some things that were indicative of habits that get in the way of people saving for retirement, investing for retirement. For instance, the debt uh, is greater, a greater portion of the total debt and student loan debt is aggregated among people over the age of 50 than it is in people from ages 18 to 24. So that makes no sense to me. If you had student loan debt, you're over 50. I don't think there is a preponderance of people going to college in their 30s. That's debt that's been there for a long time, which leads to the next depressing statistic, which is that 52% of all loan borrowers are underwater on their loans. They owe more than they originally took out. And how many of those borrowers are parents taking out loans for their kids as well? Yeah. And of the people who are underwater, they found that they, during COVID, the three-year period where student loan payments were frozen, which you would think, okay, I don't have to pay off my student loan debt. I should be able to meet my budget elsewhere because whatever I'm paying per month, I now don't have to pay. Among those people, they added on average $1,200 to their total debt during the three years they were not paying on their student loans. Those are cons those are indicative to me of a faulty consumer mindset when people tell you, well, I, I don't have money to save for retirement, they have it. They don't have the discipline to invest it, set it aside, and work something like a blueprint retirement program. Well, it's, it's just poor behaviors. Yeah, I mean, we have to – we're reaching generations now that are be, being taught by previous generations that saving money and living within your means really isn't that important. Matter of fact, if you watch any – Instagram reel or TikTok video, it seems like one says, get out of debt. You got the Dave Ramsey approach, get out of debt, get out of debt, get out of debt. But then immediately after that, juxtaposing it is another one saying the only way that you can become a bazillionaire is with debt. Well, I'd rather be a bazillionaire than just be one of these boring people that mm -hmm. lives within my means. So I might as well just take on debt. So we buy houses that we can't afford. We buy things that we can't afford because we believe that perception is important. And if we are perceived to be wealthy, then somehow our wealth will ultimately end up catching up with what we perceive us to be. Usually not the case. But, you know, I think instilling those qualities early on, and much like we said, well, taxes come out automatically, we don't even know what they are. 
we should have savings come out automatically without even knowing what it is. And then just auto set it to increase over time. So anytime you get a raise, you increase your savings. Yes. And then this autopilot approach wins. It wins every time. I hate to break it to people, but this is not a complicated process to get to the pot of money. It becomes much more complicated once you have a lot of money and you're looking to distribute it out over the rest of your life and not make any mistakes with this huge sum of money. But developing the huge sum of money just requires discipline. It's really not that complicated. Yeah, and if you have an employer who is contributing uh, in addition to what you're saving, uh, I, you wouldn't say no to someone who walked up to you on the street and said, here, I'd like to give you $5. You wouldn't say no to that. Your employer is saying that when they offer a 401k match. Yeah, they're literally saying, if you give me five, I'll give you 10. And people are saying it's not worth the five. Does it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's because the only hiccup with the five is you got to wait a little while before I give you the 10. Correct. Well, I don't like that idea. Right. Yeah. But, you know, kind of going on further with the Secure 2.0 Act, uh, the purpose of it, or at least the 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 desired impact uh, or the way it's being proposed is that it will encourage people to save more for retirement. It will give them more avenues. It'll autopilot some of these things. It'll give you the option to opt out, but you'll automatically be opt-in to some level of savings. But there's also kind of some underpinnings in here that are you know, lead to a little bit of concern. Um, for example, beginning in 2024, high wage earners over the age of 50. Now, how they're going to define high wage yeah. earners, we'll see. But once you're over the age of 50 you can contribute more to your 401k. It's called a catch-up contribution. So the the ideology there is if you got a little bit behind, you're kind of getting on that 5, 10-yard line, now it's time to start mm -hmm. really putting your foot on the accelerator. You used to be able to put in more into your 401k, and you still can. However, you cannot put that in as pre-tax money. It has to go in as after-tax money. Mm. Now, here's the real big caveat. If your employer does not offer a Roth option, you just can't do the the catch-up at all. Wow. Well, because I guess that is designed so that the government gets its, gets its tax, tax dollars yeah. today. Yeah, so what I'm seeing in a lot of this, and, and here's I'll, I'll give you one other provision, and then I'll, I'll give you kind of why I think this is going to be concerning and challenging for folks. Another one, and this is great. If you have a 529 plan, one of the concerns of a 529 plan, which is the way that a lot of people save for kids' college, if you have one of those and you don't use it, but you've had it for 15 years, well, now you can roll that money up to $35,000 of it into a Roth IRA. So it's not all for naught. Hey, I saved up. Good news. My kid got a scholarship. Well, I didn't just throw that money away. I can use that for retirement. That's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But think about some of these provisions I'm rolling out. If, if your employer doesn't have a Roth IRA, well, then you may or may not be able to do the catch-up contribution. If you have a 529 plan and it's been in existence for at least five years, but it has to be in existence for at least 15 years from your last contribution. Then you can do 35. It's just getting more and more and more complicated. And anytime things get more and more complicated, that means these nuances give you opportunity to either do well off of the nuance and be a benefactor of these things or get caught in the jet wash and screw it up and end up paying penalties. And this seems to be kind of the, the lay of the land these days, which I hate to say it's good for me. I don't think it's good for the country, but it's good for me because this is my job is trying to add some clarity. Certainly part of what you do is getting ready for new policies that are coming on board. How much of what you do is uh, adjusting to um, 
an analysis of what you think might be coming. I mean, that's a law. You know it's going to happen. There, as we talked about, is there a recession? Is there not a recession? How much advanced planning do you do on things that are not set in stone like a law coming on board? We have to because you're investing for what you think is coming, not for what happened. And unfortunately, most people invest for what happened. They look at their 401k statement and say, which which one of these funds had the best rate of return? That's the one I'm going to put all my money into. Mm-hmm. And in reality, that typically doesn't work in the long run. So, And again, though, that can be challenging because people are looking at current rates of return or maybe the last three months and saying, well, why aren't you keeping up? Well, those funds that had the highest rate of return, they haven't been highest forever, typically. you got to be in the right spots at the right time, so we're always forecasting looking forward. Yeah, and that takes the emotion out of it, and that's what I think uh, keeps people from making big mistakes is if you take the emotion out of it because emotion causes you to make irrational decisions, um, you know, born of the worst emotion possible, which is fear. So get with Josh, get with his team. Have a fiduciary who is legally obligated to do what is best for you. You get the chance to go in with no obligation and get to know them. See if you're a fit. Set up your appointment. Call their office, 614-917-1040. Their web address, you can make your appointment online, is aptuswealth.com, A-P-T-U-S. Very conveniently located in Lewis Center, off Route 750, not far from 23 and 270. And join us on Monday for Money Monday at 989 The Answer with Josh Pick. Josh, thanks so much for your time. We'll see you next week. You as well. The airing of this program by this station is not an endorsement or recommendation by the station of the products or services discussed in the program. The station does not guarantee the results of any investments made by a listener to this program.